Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks, where once again it's a delight to walk across some of the world's great battlefields. As always, I'm joined by battlefield historian Pete Smith. Pete, great to be back here again walking another wonderful battlefield. Hi Matt, yep, looking forward to it. This week we're heading north. We were on the Somme last week and now we're heading up into Belgium, still on the Western Front from the First World War, but in the Belgian sector of the battlefields. And most people don't even realise, I think, a lot of people don't realise that Belgium played such an important role in the battlefields. They think the the Western Front only ran through France, but Belgium is a really wonderful country and has a pretty special place in my heart, particularly when it comes to visiting the battlefields of the Western Front. Interestingly, Matt, I'll just uh, dive in there. Um, Of course, Belgium wasn't a name that was actually used. It was France and Flanders, F and F. So that's why we don't really talk about Belgium much, because it kind of comes under the generic of Flanders. It's a fascinating region, Pete. It was one of the first regions I went to when I visited the Western Front many years ago, and it's an essential site. I mean, the, 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 not just the country of Belgium, I'm talking about this, the section of Flanders where the, the trenches of the First World War ran through, most notably around the town of Ypres. It's it's an absolutely fascinating site and quite different from the Somme battlefields, isn't it? Oh, it is indeed. I mean, historic. It's uh, from from a point of view of being uh, uh, British English. Then it's an area that uh, Marlborough fought over and uh, in the Hundred Years' War. So it's 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 soaked in history. Sadly, of course, a lot of it will be destroyed. The, the physical remains of it will be destroyed in in the First World War. But a historic area. I mean, it, it's fantastic. And Ypres is a is a beautiful beautiful city. So the reason we're even here is that the the Germans tried to capture the city of Ypres and were unsuccessful. They entered it briefly in 1914, but for the rest of the war, they they never succeeded in capturing it. And what that meant was a bulge formed in the the British front line around the town of Ypres. And in military terms, a bulge is a salient. And so this is the famous Ypres salient and just a ghastly killing field. Probably the most famous battle that occurred here was the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917, but just an absolute killing field in this this confined space and today we're going to talk about one of the 1917 battlefields it's important for australians it's important for new zealanders it's important for british it's polygon wood and it's a site that was noticeable on trench maps of the time a fairly prominent landmark at the time and today is very noticeable as well because the wood has been replanted and it is there much as it was in 1917 so Pete, why don't you give us again a, a little bit of a, one of your insightful historic overviews about why there was fighting in this area at all um, 
Well, the Germans, again, are trying to uh, to reach the coast. They're pushing uh, back the, the Belgian army, which is falling back fairly rapidly. The British are moved in to try and assist. Um, and the fighting in that, that winter of 1914-15 around the town is an attempt to hold the Germans there to, to, to stop them from, from getting to the coast and taking any more of the uh, of, of Belgium or, or France. And in fact, there is very little of Belgium left, really. Belgium has been kind of squished into a tiny corner. The Belgian army holding the area nearer to the coast an area that uh, is prone to flooding and has been deliberately flooded to make it difficult for the Germans to, to cross. And the British Army is, is, has managed to stop the Germans in, in the town of Ypres. But it's not ideal because there is a series of ridges that run around the town and we are trying to hold the Germans from those ridges in 1914. And so in 1914, the fighting comes to the outskirts of Ypres and uh, the very heavy fighting in Polygon Wood, actually, in 1914. So the wood is very damaged very early on in the war. Um, but we are going to hold the Germans in that, that winter of 1415. But sadly, in the May of uh, of 1915, um, uh, we will actually be forced off the ridges and back uh, nearer to the town. Uh, the number of battles around Ypres means that we have the first battle of Ypres, the second battle of Ypres, the third battle of Ypres, the fourth battle of Ypres, and in fact, the fifth battle of Ypres, which is the final forcing the Germans away and, uh, and on their way back uh, uh, to eventually to the armistice. Um, so this is now the uh, we're going to be discussing the third battle of Ypres, which is really the first two. The, f- the battle one is is stopping the Germans and holding them. Battle two is again trying to stop them, but actually failing and being forced back. And battle three, the third battle of Ypres, which we now normally know as Passchendaele, is our turn. We are now forcing the Germans back up uh, up onto the ridges and then eventually over the ridges. And so Polygon Wood sits firmly in all of this, and it's on one of the ridges on the right-hand side of the town as we look towards the the German lines. The thing that I always point out to people is that the Battle of Passchendaele in October 1917 was a, an absolute disaster for the British and caused a huge number of casualties for, for little ga- a little ground gained. But the bit that we don't often understand is in the preceding months, there were a number of attacks. That Passchendaele was just the, the really the final effort in a, in a whole series of attacks that made up the Third Battle of Ypres. And the early stages of this battle were actually very, very successful, and Polygon Wood sums that up, doesn't it? It's one of the sad aspects, I think, of of the naming this battle now has become known as Passchendaele, and it's something that I try and avoid, and, and even if I can't avoid it, I explain uh, the, the, the difference between Third Ypres, which is the actual overall name of the battle, and Passchendaele, which is in fact only that last phase um, in the October and November of 1917. And you're absolutely right that the... the the, the battles before that, of which Polygon Wood is part of it, the Menin Road and eventually Broodsynth, three battles which are not really that well known. Perhaps Polygon Wood is, is the most known. But um, the, the fighting of the Menin Road and the Battle of Broodsynth, both, all three of them, successes uh, with heavy casualties, you have to say, but successfully pushing the Germans back. And then we get to Passchendaele. And everybody remembers Passchendaele, the, the disaster, the casualties, the mud, the horror of it all. And in fact, I think it's a little demeaning to all of the men who fought very hard and very successfully in those battles leading up to that final phase, the actual battle of, of Passchendaele. Well, we should talk a little bit about tactics here as well, because they changed quite significantly. The British had learnt some very important lessons on the Somme fighting in the previous year. And we now have this idea of what they called a bite-and-hold attack, which made, the Germans had changed their defensive position as well. The Germans in the, the mud and the, and, the, and the Flanders soil realised that, that continuous straight trench systems were quite difficult to defend. And so the Germans had adopted this, this system of defence in depth where they'd built mutually supporting pillboxes and trenches and a, a very deep and, and broad system of defences. And that would require a very different type of tactics to to capture those positions. So tell us about the change of attitude in the British forces that would be attacking here in 1917. Well, well the change in tactics are, are enormous. Uh, one of the, 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 the latest developments, of course, was the tank in 1916, 15th of September, it came into action, but actually it's not ideal here. The tank doesn't really make a lot of, a, a, a lot of sense in a landscape that is so boggy and so waterlogged, which is in the main, uh, the, the landscape around deep, that salient is, is, is waterlogged. But the great change the really important change is because artillery is king in the first world war if you've got the right type of artillery it's in the right place it's got good uh, good gunners it's um, it's able to uh, to pinpoint its targets and hit its targets and the change in tactics this creeping barrage 
I mentioned it briefly in a previous podcast that uh, for the Battle of the Somme, the early phases, we didn't have the creeping barrage. We now have this creeping barrage, which basically means that the infantryman, as he stands up, if all's going well, then he he walks behind a barrage of shells that move forward at the same sp- pace that he's moving. So we have that for this for this action, the fighting in Polygon Wood, and it works particularly well. Um, uh, and the infantryman himself, no longer are we having lines of men, shh, the whistle blows and they go over in, in straight lines. We now have men w- working in small groups, in arrowhead formations, artillery formation, rushing forward, covered by uh, Lewis guns that are right in with the infantry, incorporated into their tactics. Heavier machine guns, the Vickers firing over their heads. So all of this is starting to come together. And the bite and hold aspect of it means we don't always overreach ourselves. So we break down a, a, a battle, the larger battle, the third deep we break it down into these little phases where all we need to do here and this is a a prime example is take polygon wood and the surrounding landscape Uh, it isn't just an australian action we very often think this is just an australian action but we have british divisions fighting here as well but it is mainly the australian fifth division and fourth division that are going to be involved in taking the wood and the side of the wood and that's the important part uh, taking the uh, the wood Now, the other thing I need to talk about is the wood itself. It's one of those misnomers of the First World War. We talk about fighting in woods. Polygon would be no difference. There was very little wood there. And any wood that was there was really smashed to smithereens. Partly due to this bombardment prior to the assault, but also due to the fighting that we know that took place in 1914. Um, The wood was very badly damaged and smashed up in 1914. So by 1917... When we're fighting there in this battle of polygon wood, then there is little wood uh, about, really. It's more uh, just a smashed landscape. And the key feature, of course, of all of the fighting during the Third Battle of Ypres was the pillbox fighting, where the Germans had this defence in depth. They had machine gun crews stationed in and around these huge concrete blockhouses. And the way that the troops were attacking those was to to fire on them and then charge forward against very heavy machine gun fire. So again, imagine the horror of trying to fight a war in that in those conditions where you're seeing your mates get killed all around you. You eventually charged, captured this concrete pillbox. The Germans at that point would often surrender. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, prisoners were often not taken. Just a, just a horrific way to fight a war in this part of the, uh, part of the battlefield, Pete. I think the difficulty here is 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 taking prisoners. We often think about this, you know, how terrible it is that they didn't take prisoners. But in a landscape that is smashed to smithereens, that is like the craters of uh, of the moon, uh, and then add the water in and the rain and the the misery, uh, and and that most of these actions are now taking place in the dark. Trying to hang on to prisoners and look uh, and, and keep them because you have to. If you take somebody a prisoner, you have to supposed to keep him safe and and eventually move him to the rear. But you haven't got the men to do that. Yeah, you, you haven't got the the will to do it. It's just very difficult. It's easier, sadly, just to dispose of them and, and carry on. And you have to say, it's not just us that are doing it, the Germans are doing exactly the same. And also what you have to be aware of is one of the German tactics was this elastic defence where where they would, wouldn't panic. If we broke into their lines and we captured a couple of their pillboxes, all they would do is gather themselves and then counterattack very, very strongly. And so we had to be aware that this was coming, always, that uh, when we took one of these pillboxes, the first thing you have to do is try and reverse it, try and get it sorted out so it, it, it aids you and not your enemy any longer. Well, the pillboxes will feature pretty uh, prominently in this walk that we're going to do. So, so let's begin the walk, Pete. So we're, we're starting at a place that uh, I think everyone who visits this area of the battlefield should go to. It's Café de Drive, or also known as Anzac Rest. And it's a cafe on the edge of Polygon Woods. We've driven out of the town of Ypres. We've followed the signs into the village of Zonnebeck. We've turned right in the village of Zonnebeck and headed out to Polygon Wood. We've driven past the length of Polygon Wood. We'll come back and walk through it later in the tour. And we're going to stop at the cafe down in the corner. And Café de Drive, um, run by Johan van der Waal, who is a, uh, a very good friend to Australia and to British people as well, because he's done a lot to preserve the memory of, uh, of the troops that fought and died here. And I've, I've known Johan for, for many years and um, just a really fascinating bloke. Tell us about your encounters with Johan. Oh, Johan is, is fantastic. I don't think I know anybody on the battlefields that lives and breathes the battlefields as much as Johan does. Uh, he, he was brought up with it. He has always lived on the battlefields. He, from a very young man, he's been keen. He was in a group known as the Diggers for a long time who explored underground uh, tunnels and uh, and dug out, dug out bunkers and things. So he's a, a, an absolute aficionado. The knowledge he has is extraordinary. 
one of the hardest parts with Johan is trying to stop him talking. And when you're on a battlefield tour and you're trying to take a battlefield tour, then it's it's quite difficult. But it's because he's so enthusiastic. So I don't mind letting him run on a, a, a little bit. He also has a very good private museum in the uh, in the the upstairs uh, the the uh, attic of his little cafe, which he's very happy to let people go and uh, have a wander around. And it has a lot of the relics that he's found over the over the years. And in recent years, he's been raising a memorial uh, known as the Brothers in Arms Memorial because uh, he also was called in and is regularly still called in when they find the remains of uh, of soldiers on the battlefield. We always imagine that the Commonwealth War Graves does all the work. But in fact, uh, the Commonwealth War Graves recovers the remains. They don't do any kind of archaeological work. And so it's left to others. And and Johan has been involved in in very many recoveries and perhaps the most famous known as the Zonibek Five, which we we will talk about later, who were five Australians that he recovered. The interesting aspect of that is that one of those uh, chaps was buried by his brother, and it and it it, it hooked Johann and, and and upset him a little as well, and he it just became obsessed with it, and eventually he has raised uh, a memorial to brothers, um, which is nearing uh, completion, very close to the cafe that uh, where we're standing at the moment. So yeah, he's he's a great guy and well worth a, ch- a chat, and certainly if you arrive here independently and wants some information, then he, he's just a great source of information. Well, that's exactly what happened to me the first time I visited the battlefields more than 20 years ago. I called in there to find out a, a little bit more about Polygon Wood, and Johan ended up taking me on a bit of a private tour of the wood. So that was back in the days when I was just a, you know, a, skinny, a skinny kid who knew nothing about the, uh, about the war. It was uh, really wonderful to meet Johan. But you mentioned the Zonebeck Five. I should talk a little bit more about my connection with them as well because... In 2007, I was in Belgium making a documentary about an archaeological dig that was taking place on some nearby trenches. And in just casual conversation with Johan, he mentioned that uh, that the year before he'd uncovered these Australian bodies uh, on the battlefield and that they were now going to be DNA tested. Uh, and that was the first time that DNA was used and, and was successful in identifying three of the five Australian soldiers. And so that became the basis for the documentary that I made in 2007 uh, called Lost in Flanders. And uh, it still pops up from time to time. I think you can find it on the internet and uh, it still pops up on the ABC from time to time. But that tells the story of the discovery of these five bodies. And Johan plays a very important role in that. So uh, I always feel very indebted to Johan and it was a wonderful uh, connection. I I was not involved in the identification of the soldiers. That was through people much more talented than I was. But uh, it was a real privilege to be able to tell that story during the making of this documentary. So look out for that documentary, Lost in Flanders, and you'll get to see Johan uh, doing his uh, his thing, being enthusiastic on the battlefields, which is what he does best. But certainly call into the cafe. Johan will be there behind the bar, have a cold beer, say hello, and he'll uh, he'll regale you with stories of the battlefields and see the museum. It's really a great place to stop, get some context for Polygon Wood uh, before we head off into the wood. But that's what we're now going to do. We're now going to walk down from the from the western edge of the wood where we are at Johan's cafe. We're going to walk down to the southwest corner of the wood to what's known as Black Watch Corner. Pete, tell us about Black Watch Corner. Well, Black Watch Corner, um, I've known it and everybody knows it as Black Watch Corner. And I suppose like a lot of names, certainly battlefield names, you don't really think about it a great deal. I knew I knew the Australian story there, but I have to say the 1914-15 story had not been one that I was overly conversant with for for a long, long time. And a few years ago, they started putting in the base of a, of what was obviously going to be a memorial. And I remember looking at it with interest and thinking, was this going to be an Australian memorial or what was it going to be? And it is the most stunning. Probably, I think one of the, if not the, the, the greatest depiction of a, of a Scottish soldier that I've ever seen, certainly on the battlefield. Um, enormous, great, oversized bronze memorial to uh, to the Black Watch, uh, a Scottish regiment, and it's commemorating them on the Western Front in their uh, entirety, but more specifically to the fighting that took place on the 10th and 11th of November in 1914 as they hurled back the Prussian Guard. So uh, they view it as one of the, the, the greater actions of the, of the Great War. So this, uh, this, this enormous great bronze of a Scottish kilted soldier, um, rifle and bayonet at the port, uh, facing the, the oncoming Prussian Guard. So, yeah, stunning memorial. So it's commemorating the, the fighting of 1914-15, uh, uh, not the Australians fighting there 
in 1917. Uh, but a great place to stop and a great place to, 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 to be able to kind of have a good look at the wood because one of the rides, the central ride that runs right the way down the wood actually starts there as well. So it's a really good place to, to, to start entering the wood and starting to envisage what was going on uh, here in 1917. Because we haven't mentioned the date yet. The date of this action is the 26th of September in 1917. And during that attack at Blackwatch Corner, uh, a couple of very important Australian uh, things occurred there as well. Um, most notably, the, the, the story that I always find really gripping is that the tale that that as the Australians advanced before the attack and captured this area, there was a double-storied German pillbox there, a machine gun post, which the Australians successfully captured. But the, the account is that the, that the men in the top level of the pillbox did not uh, appreciate that their comrades on the ground level had surrendered, and so they kept fighting, and an Australian officer was, uh, was Frederick Moore, Captain Frederick Moore, was then killed by a machine gun fired from the top level after the Australians had thought the Germans had surrendered. And as you can imagine, this was considered absolute treachery from the Australians. And um, and the account I read said that they would have slaughtered the entire German garrison uh, if not for the intervention of another another Australian officer who stopped them from just the, the, the slaughter of the German garrison. So again, the, the fog of war, Pete, the confusion that goes on, it's, it's very difficult to know what's happening on a battlefield. It could simply have been one German machine gunner decided he wasn't going to surrender. It could have been a group of German machine gunners who did, didn't realise that their comrades had surrendered and, and fought on. Just, again, the, the, the terrible small tales that we, we hear all the time on the battlefields. I think that's the difficulty in fighting. You have to remember that most of this this fighting from, from well, from the Battle of the Somme, the, the later phases of the Battle of the Somme uh, in 1916 onwards, most major attacks take place in the dark, and, and this one is a, is a night attack. So it's very difficult. Uh, you know, I, I served in the military and I, uh, I haven't seen combat, but certainly a lot of exercises in the dark, and it is very difficult to try and figure out what's going on all the time. Um, and so when, when you are in, in combat and you're, your adrenaline's up and you're faced with Germans. I mean, how on earth can you tell? How can the Germans tell whether people whether the people have surrendered, whether they're supposed to surrender, what on earth's going on? And so I think uh, I think you can you can understand the difficult the difficulty that, that that men had. Equally, there were men who would not surrender uh, and will fight to the end no matter what, even if they're ordered to surrender. Now, on both sides, you you get men of of equal caliber who are who have just made a decision at the beginning of this war that they will not be taken and they will fight to the end no matter what. It's also near this point that uh, a young bloke called Paddy Bugden won the Victoria Cross. Um, unfortunately, posthumously, he was killed in the uh, in the action that, that he was eventually awarded the Victoria Cross for. But uh, Paddy Bugden, a great story, a private, uh, but taking on pretty much the Germans single-handedly and um, and responsible for really helping uh, his uh, his battalion advance uh, during this uh, tough fighting at Polygon Wood. I think it's interesting here as well, isn't it? That part of his VC citation is is yes for, for taking in, uh, bunkers and killing Germans, but also for rescuing his own men. Um, and again, I think that starts to to allow you to understand the confusion of what was going on. Is that a single man suddenly noticed that there were a group of Germans taking Australian prisoners back behind the lines, and he was able to rush them and to 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 kill them and, and scare them off and, and free these these Australians. So again, it shows you the intermingling. Of, of the actions that uh, that were going on at the time and the confusion. But yeah, a, a fantastic VC citation and, and a real fighting VC, uh, sadly, that, that will cost him his life. But it, he was extraordinary on that day, extraordinary. So the other important thing to note about Blackwatch Corner as we're standing here is this is effectively the start point for the attack. So the Australian lines stretched across the wood and this is roughly where the Australians began their attack from. And again, the description, you talked about the rolling barrage and, and how important that was, the creeping barrage to protect the troops. And I love Charles Bean's description in the official history where he described it as the most perfect that ever protected Australian troops. And he said it rolled forward like a Gippsland bushfire in front of the Australian troops. And we should remember at this time as well, it had been a warm summer and the ground was not as boggy as it was going to become when the uh, rains arrived in time for the Battle of Passchendaele. So it was dusty, it was dry, and this creeping barrage was absolutely perfect, just shielding the troops as they advanced, which effectively was the only way to capture these German defensive positions. 
it, it's described, isn't it? There's the the dust was intermingled with the uh, with the smoke and uh, and the, the 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 gas that was being used, and and it just became a fog. Uh, and you can imagine, and this is in the dark. So on top of it being dark, you've then got this enormous kind of cloud of 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 dust and and gas and smoke that that is moving forward in front of you, and that you're having to fight through. <laughs> Gives me the EBGBs, to be honest. You know, it, it, it really would have been very, very difficult. And direction is one of the things that's a problem. And I think it's described that officers who are commanding here had to take their compasses out and actually get compass bearings to to keep the advance going because because it was so thick the the, uh, the dust and the uh, and the the smog and the and uh, and the dark um, made it so difficult. They were using compass bearings for for the advance. Not to mention the noise. Imagine the noise oh. of that barrage falling down. It's the one thing I think those of us who've been fortunate never to have been in combat just cannot comprehend, particularly when we talk about the First World War and the scale of the artillery fire. The noise would have been absolutely deafening. It's unsurprising that all those old veterans that we met in our youth uh, were always a bit hard of hearing. I'm never surprised by that because of just the sheer cacophony that would have been occurring during these great battles. I've been involved in a couple of firepower demonstrations uh, uh, in the past uh, when I when I was serving, and and certainly to have the kind of the artillery and the mortars coming over you and and every gun firing at the same time—that's the whole point—is to try and show how much fire you can put down. Deafening. It is absolutely. That's without anybody firing back at you. Uh, absolutely deafening. You can't hear yourself speak. Just extraordinary. I think there's no way we can comprehend just the scale of the the destruction and the noise and the the, the the horrific sight that it would have presented from both sides. No wonder no wonder men ran from the battlefield. But you mentioned the word ride before that. There's a ride that leads from Blackwatch Corner to the Butts, which is the main feature of Polygon Wood. What, what what's a ride, Pete? Yeah, a ride is uh, it's an old term. It's been used for I suspect centuries, and it goes back to the kind of baronial homes of people uh, that uh, the landed gentry. Um, and it's interesting that this, the same term is used uh, in Belgium, uh, in uh, in the UK as well. And a ride basically is is a gap in the woods. So if you plant a wood, you put these rides going through it, and they literally that's what they're for. They were for the landed gentry to go out for a ride in the morning, and they would follow these woods. Secondary use, of course, is fire breaks. They were used as fire breaks if you had a fire in one part of the would then it allow it allowed that, that to be uh, to be fought and to uh, to not cross into an, another another section of the woods. So yeah, woods generally speaking, plant, planted wood plantations uh, will have rides these gaps in them that uh, you can you can use. And we should mention that point as well that the reason the wood is even here was it was replanted in the nineteen twenties uh, after the uh, after the war. It was as you said completely destroyed and and then the wood was completely replanted, which is why it's still there and the, the original shape from before the first world war. Yeah, it's it's replanted as most woods were. It was something that uh, certainly the, the French and the Belgians, I think, followed that they wanted their, their countryside, their landscape, putting back as it had been. Uh, and woods were a big part of the landscape. And so nearly all the woods are put back exactly the same as they have been. And in fact, this is, anybody wonders what, what kind of trees uh, we have growing here. They're predominantly pine trees. It's a, it's a pine wood that has some deciduous trees, oaks and, and elms and things around the outside, beaches, especially around the outside of it. But in the main, it's it's pine. And it's still a worked wood. It's something that a lot of people kind of don't realise. They think a wood is just a wood, but it's there for a reason. And the reason here is that the, the, the trees are harvested, not in bulk, so they don't take whole areas. They will just select trees throughout the wood and, and take out a few trees every year. So you can only spot them. They've got a big red mark on them. That means that tree's doomed. It's going to be removed. Well, we're going to walk along that main ride, which leads from Blackwatch Corner to the Butts, New British Cemetery, which is at the far end of the of the wood. And you will see it from the moment you enter the wood. You can look down along this very long, wide track that leads the entire length of the wood to this cemetery at the far end. But I should say as well, um, grab a copy of my book, Walking with the Anzacs, if you, if you want to walk in our footsteps on this, because there are a number of other sites to see in the wood that we're not going to include on this virtual walking tour. Um, but if you take a right, for example, on the first path you come to in the wood and walk down there, you'll find the remains of a German pillbox captured by the Australians. There's several other German pillboxes that are scattered throughout the woods. So it's, it's well worth exploring. There's the remains of, tr- of trenches. It's, uh, it's quite a remarkable place, Polygon Wood. And as I said, I still have fond memories of it being one of the first battlefield sites I visited, if not the first battlefield that I visited the first time I came to the Western Front. Just extraordinary. But we're going to continue along the main road down through the woods, the, the haunting woods, Pete. It's quite a it's, it's, it is a haunting place when you walk through there and imagine you're walking in the footsteps of the Australians from over a century ago and how many of them were killed or wounded in the ground very near to where you're now walking. 
and and probably still uh, there will still be unrecovered bodies around us. So it's one of the things we always have to remember, especially when you're in these wooded areas, that, that the men are still here. Uh, quite often, uh, they'll, they'll all be around us. A number of the of the missing, they were not recovered. Um, again, what you have to, I always have to kind of enforce this with with people or reinforce it is the fact that this was not a wood when when the Australians were moving through here. This was shattered timber at the best, uh, and the the landscape of the moon at the worst. So it it it's not a wood, even though we talk about it. So yes, they're scrambling over woods. It actually there was an issue here. It meant that if you did have to go to ground, you couldn't really dig here very easily because of the roots that were everywhere. And so normally you just used uh, the shell holes that had been created, and there were a lot of those uh, here as well but it is very moving being in that wood and there's something about woods that that just makes you think more you you can't see a great deal and so i suppose that is what the soldiers experience is that lack of vision lack of being able to see what is what is coming up the one thing they could see always is this butt this this mound and it's their final objective really is to get to the butt it's at the far side of the wood and it was visible. It was visible from, from almost everywhere, so long as you could see it. Um, and, of course, a lot of the guys wouldn't be able to see it until they actually got right almost on top of it. But this is a, it's a, a very big uh, mound. It's man-made. Um, and it was the backstop of a rifle range. That's where we get the term a, a butt, the butts. Um, here it's a boot, um, spelt slightly different, but it's it's the backstop of a rifle range because prior to the Great War, there had been this rifle range in, in the middle of the wood. And uh, to stop these newfangled rifles when they developed the rifles rather than the musket, the bullets travelled a lot further. They decided they needed to have some backstop and so they built this, this mound to stop the bullets. And the Germans will utilise it uh, as an observation from the top of it, but also they will hollow it out and fill it with concrete and make it into a fortified position. So it's the final objective for the Australians moving through the wood. And it's visible, uh, as as we discussed, right the way from when you first start walking up this ride, you can see it at the end. Well, we're going to walk, keep walking through the wood and probably for about half a kilometre or so. And eventually on our left, we're going to come to a, a small path which takes us off the main track and then leads to one of the most extraordinary sites you'll see anywhere in this region, a huge bunker called Scott's Post which was captured by the Australians during that advance on the 26th of September, 1917. Pete, the first time I saw this thing, and still every time I see it, every time I take a group there, every time I visit it, it's massive. There's two huge rooms on each side. It has damage all over it from shell fire during this attack and indeed during the entire war. Just an extraordinary relic left over from the fighting. It's also one that used to be quite difficult to find. I'm sure you've experienced it, and, and I know Absolutely. I certainly have, is that the, the path has now been improved and, it, and it's well marked now, so you can't really miss it. But in the old days, it was just people walking there that, that, that sort of made it visible. Uh, but quite often, as I was walking and talking, I'd be kind of half panicking and thinking, have I gone past it? Have I gone past it? Because you can't see it. It also gives you an idea of how easy it was to camouflage things, that you cannot see this enormous blockhouse until you're almost on, on top of it. Um, an interesting aspect of it, uh, it is damaged and it's damaged on one side where it, you'd expect it to be damaged on the side that was facing the Australian advance. It's terribly damaged, uh, not penetrated by any shells, but you can see it's being hit over and over again by shells. But the major damage to the left-hand side, and the left-hand side it's broken into two sections, two halves, so it's effectively one blockhouse but with, with two sections. The left-hand section is terribly damaged. And that damage is actually post-war, and it's uh, it's a way of they attempted to get rid of them by filling them with munitions that have been collected in the area, and then detonate, detonating it, and hoping that they would remove the the blockhouse as well as the munitions. In this case, it hasn't worked. It's just kind of spread one side of it a little, um, uh, but it uh, yeah you still get the it's still almost complete, so you get the the idea of what it was like. And what you can obviously see is that it had steel doors on it. They're no longer there. They'll have been uh, used, uh, salvaged for scrap, but you can see that where the fittings would have been um, steel doors and gas doors. These things were self-contained. If you could get in and shut the door and and hold out, uh, hold out, then the, the hope would be that the, in a counterattack you would be rescued. So that's the choice you had always when you were defending one of these blockhouses was do I run or do I stay with it and hope that somebody's going to come and get me the thing that I think is most extraordinary about this pillbox well among many things that are extraordinary about it is that on the front side where all the, the shell damage is is there's a perfect there's a perfect hole where you can see the nose cone of probably a, a field artillery shell 
where the shell has dug into the concrete and you, there's a perfect circle where the nose cone is and then the thing's exploded. <laughs> it's like the shape of the shell. It's almost that, like a fossil, like a fossil mark, isn't it? In the, it's in incredible. The it's, yeah, it is. And you can put, yeah. it's the size of your fist, but you can see the shape of the shell that gouged out the huge chunk of concrete on what was a remarkable hit from the field gunners, a direct hit on the pillbox. But um, this was captured by the 56th Battalion, the Australian Battalion, during the advance on the 26th of September. And you talked about the steel doors and the the Germans inside. Um, At the point where they realised they were surrounded, I just love this quote from the 56th Battalion War Diary, where they said that the the Germans, uh, after they realised they were surrounded, emerged from the bunker like whimpering boys holding out armfuls of souvenirs. And the great great aspect of the Australian souvenir hunters was, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of getting a helmet or a watch from a German prisoner was, was something that drove the Australians uh, quite fiercely. And uh, the Germans knew it as well. And as, they, as the, the, you know, the young garrison emerged absolutely terrified into the arms of the waiting Australians, they held forward these souvenirs for them in, in hopefully a, some sort of a peace offering so that they wouldn't be killed. And uh, this was one of the places where prisoners were taken. The, 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 um, the, the garrison was captured and sent back to the Australian lines. There's an interesting aspect uh, about the taking of uh, of this uh, uh, blockhouse. We haven't actually mentioned it. I don't think we mentioned its name. It's known as uh, Scott's Post. Um, and there is a, a little plaque to the side of it that uh, commemorates um, Scott and uh, his um, uh, uh, his men. And I've always been slightly confused because we, we have uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scott uh, commanding the battalion uh, that took the, uh, the, the blockhouse here. Um, he, he would die a few days later and he's buried in, uh, in the cemetery that we're going to walk to. But the name that's on the side of it, that somebody has put a private uh, memorial plaque, is to a Scott who is a, a second lieutenant and has been awarded the MC. And I just couldn't understand and, and figure out what was going on. And it is only recently that I've realised that they are actually brothers. And they both fought here in, in, the, in the battle. So Lieutenant Colonel Scott, who will, who, who will be killed a few days later and is buried uh, in the cemetery... Um, it was his brother that was involved in the actual taking of uh, of the blockhouse, and he is he survives the war, survives the Great War, and he's commemorated on the uh, on the blockhouse himself. And also, there's some um, trenches in this area too, aren't there? Not a lot of trenches in the wood, but there are some in this area as well. You can very clearly see the trench from the the ride going to the the blockhouse. Uh, well, not clearly; you have to kind of squint slightly. But you can once you've once you've got the hang of it and you can see where it is, and it's easier to follow it from the from the ride. You can follow it zigzagging all the way to the blockhouse, and you realise it was the route from the ride to the blockhouse. There, there was a zigzagging trench. So yeah, they're they're mainly filled in. There's an interesting aspect here that the within woods in France the they didn't tend to fill in the trenches and the shell holes they just replanted the trees and and the wood grew and they thought no point in filling everything in so you always get a slight inkling of the battlefield in France if you walk into a, a wood that was on the battlefield in Belgium sadly they tended to level the landscape and then plant the trees so you don't get that insight quite as as much as you do it in France but here just occasionally, you can see the trenches. They're very shallow. You can get just a little divot in the ground almost, but you can follow them here. That's another important point to make as well, is these, even though these blockhouses stood often in isolation as, a, as, a, as an obstacle to the attacking troops, you think, well, the Germans had to get into them. They, they couldn't cross the open battlefield to get into them. So they were joined and linked by an intricate system of trenches, which enabled the Germans to say, stay safe and move between them. Um, and as you say, you can occasionally still see those, uh, those trenches uh, leading to the blockhouses. So a couple of other important little um, pillboxes we should mention here, Pete. <laughs> I'm sure anyone listening to this who has walked through Polygon Wood or, or anyone who attempts this walk will discover this, the famous New Zealand shelters in Polygon Wood. Now, not far from Scott Post, if you walk, continue along and walk towards the, uh, the cemetery at the far end of the ride, in the wood on the left are two very small, low bunkers that were built by New Zealand troops who occupied this, this sector in 1918. And they're fascinating. They're, they're tiny little, uh, little shelters and um, described as holding eight men each, which I think is remarkable when you see the size of them, Pete. But I think something even more remarkable is how absolutely bloody impossible they are to find today. So I think we should have some sort of award system that we give someone a badge of honour for anyone that can find the New Zealand shelters in Polygon Woods. So if you're the adventurous type, take that as your, your challenge to try and locate the New Zealand shelters. How do you go finding them, Pete, whenever you take a group there? 
I don't. <laughs> I failed miserably a couple of times with my groups. Um, and it's, it tends to be the time of year. If the, uh, the brambles and the nettles and the, the, and the, the wild uh, um, growth is, is high, very difficult to see, very difficult to find. Um, if it's winter and everything's died back, easier. <laughs> so, so it depends on the time of year. I, I now, generally speaking, don't attempt it if it's, uh, if it's in the summer because I'm, I know there's a, a, a chance I may fail. I do mention them in my book, but uh, I do say that they are very difficult to find. So, yes, yeah, see that as your challenge. If you're, uh, if you're listening to this and you want to go and try and find those New Zealand bunkers, good luck and, uh, and let us know on Facebook or Twitter how you get on. But uh, they're, they're certainly worth, uh, worth having a look at because, of course, this is important New Zealand ground. The New Zealanders did not participate in the Battle of Polygon Wood in 1917, but they occupied this ground um, through, much of, through a large part of this, the early months of 1918, and so a very important site for the New Zealanders as well. So a great area to come together to remember those Anzac troops uh, in Belgium. Well, in fact, it's going to be the next thing we're going to we're going to walk to, um, because as we uh, as we about face and move back to the to the ride, we we carry on down and we're heading towards uh, Butts uh, New British Cemetery. Um, in the old days, to get into the cemetery, you had to uh, climb over the wall, and it was always a bit naughty. The, the Commonwealth War Graves didn't like you climbing over the wall, but it was really the only thing you could do other than that. You had a bit of a, a scramble to get round to the, the actual entrance. Um, I think for a change, they, they totally recognised the need for a gate, and so we now thankfully have a gate that takes us uh, into the cemetery. And the first thing that we see directly in front of us is, in fact, uh, a New Zealand memorial. It is the memorial to the missing for this area. Pete, so tell us about the the nature of New Zealand memorials to the missing because we're going to explore this one in detail. But the the Kiwis took a different approach to their memorials, didn't they, than the uh, the British and the, and the Australians and, and other members of the Commonwealth? They did. The British do it slightly. We we tend to because of the the numbers involved. It means that we needed more memorials to the missing, and so we we sometimes uh, have decided to produce the, the the memorials on certain sites. Sometimes it's a a single battlefield commemorating the missing from that battlefield. Sometimes it's time locked, so it's an area, but then it's a time as well. New Zealand went down that route, but then took it a step further. They decided that they would have a memorial to their missing from every battlefield that they fought on. And so there are multiple memorials to the New Zealand missing, always close to to the action, and generally speaking, close to a memorial commemorating New Zealand in, 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 in that area. Um, and so there is uh, fairly close, there is a New Zealand uh, obelisca memorial as well. But here we have one very specific to the men fighting in 1917 and 1918 in the sector of, of, of the woods, so Polygon Woods. Um, and they are, their missing men are commemorated on the memorial uh, within, the, within the confines of the cemetery. It's really quite a beautiful memorial. It's like a low building almost with columns and it's, it's really quite lovely. It fits in very well with the, the design and layout of this entire cemetery. The, the, the cemetery, which we'll talk about in some more detail shortly, is, is an absolutely beautiful place and I, th- I think this memorial is a real highlight of the visit there. Again, like all the New Zealand memorials, only one division of New Zealanders fought during the war. So I, I always like to say that the New Zealanders are probably the only country that doesn't claim that they won the war with their one division, but, but nevertheless uh, a vital contribution played by the, uh, by the New Zealanders in the war. And they were some tough fighters. The Kiwis were tough fighters. The Germans never liked facing them. And this is a relatively small memorial compared to some of the other massive memorials to the missing. Only 378 men commemorated on it. But it does tell a story of some pretty tough Kiwi actions in this area, doesn't it, Pete? It does indeed. It also has a secondary effect, uh, kind of uh, usage as well, as, as well as carrying the names of the of the missing and being a beautiful memorial to New Zealand. We have to think of the of the men that design these cemeteries, and they're designing them with an element of practicality. And you have to think where this is. Well, the nearest town is a, a place called uh, Zonibek, uh, and it's quite some way away. So it means that you had either a walk, or you came in a taxi, or you came by a bus, or you you came on a pushbike in some ca- um, some cases. But whatever way you came. You've then got a little walk into the wood, and what do you do if it's pouring with rain? Um, and I'm sure that uh, both Matt and myself have experienced this. It, it does pour with rain on, on a fairly regular basis, and um, and you can shelter there. You can you can walk into the New Zealand Memorial and these little asps, if that's the correct term, at each side. You can you can go in there. You can shake off your your brolly and your coat and and have a bit of a chat and a warm up before you head out into the rain again. So it's. It's, and, it, and it was designed for that. It was designed as a practical uh, place as well. There are also seats within the cemetery. So it's something that we, a lot of people feel uncomfortable with is 
is relaxing in these cemeteries. They feel like almost you have to have your head bowed and you have to be kind of fairly miserable. But, but that wasn't the intention when they built them. They built them with places where certainly the veterans that came back, the people that, that wanted to come and see where their their comrades had died or their relatives that came back, they wanted them to, to have that practicality of being able to sit down and perhaps have a flask of coffee and uh, and a sandwich while they were wanting to be close to their relatives or their mates. So it's it's something that we feel uncomfortable with now, but I, I, I don't. I think it's quite acceptable to have a, a coffee while you're, uh, if you've got a flask with you, uh, while you're uh, w- walking around these uh, these cemeteries. So so yeah, practicality in, in this uh, this New Zealand memorial to the missing as well. It's a really important point, Pete, that as much as they, they realised they were building these cemeteries in perpetuity and that for centuries people would come and visit them, the reason they built these cemeteries was particularly so that grieving families from the UK because obviously from Australia and New Zealand it was a bit far to come, but grieving families from the UK could come and visit their lost sons. So I always say to people, they didn't build these cemeteries for us. It's wonderful that we're now here remembering remembering a century later, but they didn't build them for us. They built them for the grieving mothers and sisters and wives and children that came over from England uh, as pilgrims in the 1920s to walk these cemeteries. And they were practical places. There were a lot of people that came over. They had to be practical. Transport was not good. Communication was not good. And as you say, they needed somewhere to sit. They needed somewhere to get out of the rain. They needed somewhere to warm up in winter. And so you see these elements built into the construction of the cemeteries. I think it's wonderful. The pilgrimages that were made in the 1920s, to me, are a separate but fascinating chapter of the history of the battlefields in just the same way the fighting is. Oh, indeed, and we've just gone uh, past the anniversary of one of the uh, uh, one of the the big pilgrimages. So I think it's important that we remember those. And I I, I agree. I find them uh, as interesting, almost as the, as the as the battlefield is is these people returning and how did they get there and what did what did they do when they uh, when they returned? And so yeah, it's, it's a very very moving aspect of uh, of the battlefields. I think is people returning and how they got about, how they visited, and uh, uh, and what they did. Um, I'm going to go off on a, a completely little tangent because I think it's just so interesting. A, a few years ago, in the middle of Ypres, on uh, one of the rebuilt buildings, I found scratched into a, a brick the names and numbers of two Australian soldiers. And I just have looked them up and I think, how on earth did they get back? Because uh, the, the cost of getting to uh, to, us, us, uh, to the Western Front from Australia was well, prohibitive to a good, I would say, a good 90% of the population is cannot get back. But these- Not just the money as well. Not just the money, the time. If you imagine it was a, a six-week sailing, six weeks each way plus the time you spent there meant it was effectively a six-month trip you were going to take to Europe. Who could, who could take time off from their job for six months in the 1920s? Yep. And these two guys, which is the fascinating aspect, I thought perhaps they're Brits serving in the Australian forces. So maybe they stayed in the, in Britain at the end of the war. But no, they didn't. They're Australians. They're born and bred in Australia. So somehow or other in the 1920s, they've come back and they've uh, they've scratched their names. It's outside of a bar, as you'd expect. They've scratched their names into the brickworks outside of a bar. But I've looked at their service files. I can't see how they could afford it. You have to think that they were maybe sailors. Maybe they, they so they came back, uh, worked their ticket back across to Europe. I have no idea, but it's a great, great little bit of nuances of the battlefield that make it uh, interesting. The other thing I just wanted to mention is we can see how important it was to the families in Australia who would never visit because part of the documentation that went on with every uh, every family who had lost a relative, they received a, a little booklet which was explaining what the, the Imperial War Graves were doing and how their relatives would be commemorated. So w- they were aware that these relatives couldn't make that journey. It was too far and too costly and too much time. And so this little booklet was part of that compensation almost here's the booklet here you can actually see what we're doing and and how the cemeteries will be be created and if you're an Australian listening to this and you do make that wonderful journey to walk the battlefields remember when you read those headstones of the boys from Ballarat and Bendigo and and Wagga and, and all over Australia that you are completing that pilgrimage that the families never got to. And so it's a really moving thing, I think, particularly for Australians. And a lot of the headstones with personal inscriptions from the families reflect the, just the tyranny of distance that they would never visit the grave. And in fact, it's probably a good segue that we're going to head into the cemetery now and walk through the Butts New British Cemetery. And the first grave on the far row on the left is one of my favourites. And when we talk of personal inscriptions, is one of the favourite inscriptions I've ever seen. Just absolutely heart-wrenching. It's, it's not an Australian soldier, it's a British soldier. But the inscription says, Tread softly, a mother's love lies here. And that's, uh, that to me sums up the, the entire reason for being for these cemeteries, a place of commemoration to remember 
lost sons and husbands. Just just absolutely extraordinary. Pete, you must have seen some heart-wrenching inscriptions over the years. Uh, I mean, truly terrible ones uh, and some very, uh, very moving uh, inscriptions as well. And uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me how people reacted, really. And we can see, um, I can't instantly quote any, but I'm just going to give you an, a, a kind of a taster. You get you get some very vitriolic ones. You can see the families are not happy. They're, they're not happy that their relative went to the war and died uh, uh, fighting for a cause, perhaps, that they, they didn't feel was necessary from, from an Australian perspective for their relative to have, have made that great journey and to, to have lost his life. And then we get the opposite. We get we get ones that are so heartbreaking. I mean, the ones that upset me the most, uh, having children, are anything to do with children. You know, any, anything that is is from the mother and baby so and so, and just 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 very very heartbreaking. I mean, there are several excellent books out uh, on uh, private uh, epitaphs on the First World War um, cemeteries, and uh, one of them uh, actually has a link to an Australian. It's, it's um, in Fame's Eternal Camping Ground is the title of the book, uh, and that is part of a, an inscription on an Australian soldier who was awarded the Victoria C- uh, Cross uh, during the fighting uh, at Passchendaele. Um, and so uh, yeah, that's an excellent book, well worth uh, having a look at, and it's just full of very, very moving uh, uh, private inscriptions. Well, there's a lot to read in this cemetery because it's a big one. This is a concentration cemetery, and when we say concentration, we mean graves were concentrated here from other sites in the area after the war. So this was not a cemetery that existed during the war. It was built after the war. And today there's 2,108 uh, men buried or commemorated here, of which 564 are Australians. And as you would expect, Pete, from the fighting in this area, a lot of bodies being brought in after the war, more than 1,600 of those more than 2,000 graves are unidentified, just an extraordinary proportion. But graves from fighting across the entire gamut of, of, of battles in 1917 here. It's extraordinary when you go up onto the book, which we are going to do in a little while, and and look down onto the cemetery, and you can see quite a lot of the headstones, and you just see over and over again that the, the, there's no name on there, uh, they are, they are unknown, uh, and uh, yeah, it's because of the nature of the fighting here. So many men. Were, were buried where they fell and marked rudimentary the old rifle and the helmet on the top and very often the soldiers would scribble their names onto a little piece of paper rolled it up and put it into a in their rifle sling uh, where their rifle sling fastened you could just slip it in there how long is that going to last if that's the only indication of who's buried there and that guy then is not going to be recovered if recovered at all uh, for a couple of years and by then it was almost impossible to ad- identify them and you were very lucky if you if you were able to be identified so so many are, are not uh, and well into the 1920s uh, they were recovering bodies and ah, they still do I don't know why I'm saying that because they're still recovering ooh, I don't know 100 maybe uh, every year still to this day probably slightly less than that nowadays but um and that figure has not really dropped it's it's not dropped since uh, since the 20s and 30s and it, and it's continued so uh, and perhaps it's increasing at the moment because of uh, expansion of of building onto the battlefields, uh, and that is causing us to find more bodies than we have in in, in previous uh, uh, years. So it, it doesn't end. Um, it's a very obvious cemetery. I use a little ditty uh, when I'm walking in these cemeteries. If it's symmetrical, then you know it's a concentration cemetery. And I always say symmetry in the cemetery. If the symmetry in the cemetery, it's concentration. It has to have been created after the war because it's been designed, not just the walls and the buildings, but the actual the graves, the layout of them. So one thing you can say here with absolute certainty is beneath every single headstone, there is a, a, a soldier, uh, whether we know who he is or not. But beneath every headstone, there is a soldier. And I'm just going to put a little extra bit of information on here, which I think is fascinating. The Commonwealth War Graves would not recover fragmentary remains. It didn't seem, well, pointless, I suppose. I know it's a horrible thing to say, but why would you recover a hand of a soldier found in the fields by uh, by somebody ploughing or walking? Why would you recover a foot? Um, because, of course, the next week somebody could find another foot. And then what do you do? Do you, you end up with two burials that, that had both just... So they didn't recover fragmentary remains. But in this cemetery now... Again, so if you are standing on the butt and looking towards the New Zealand Memorial, on the right-hand side, there is a gravestone away from all the rest, and effectively, it is for fragmentary remains. So the Commonwealth Wargraves are now accepting the fragments of soldiers, very often found in archaeological work, very often found by people walking the battlefields. Um, you can uh, now hand those in, and they will be buried in these in this uh, this little area around this one uh, headstone that is for fragmentary remains. So very moving, I find. 
I think it's a wonderful innovation because for decades I've been visiting the battlefields and it's 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 horrific. But you do find them. You find scraps of human remains lying around, individual bones and things, and um, you never knew what to do with them. I always just made a little hole and reburied them on the battlefield. But uh, it's it's wonderful. Those are now being gathered up and and uh, and and reburied in the cemeteries. Um, a couple of important graves to look out for here. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Scott that we mentioned earlier from Scott Post. He is buried here. Uh, not far away from him is um, Lieutenant Colonel Dudley Turnbull from the um, from the 20th Battalion of the Manchester Regiment. Now, there's a couple of funny stories about this, Pete. They were both killed at the same time, and there's a suggestion that they were killed during a handover. That that as the Australians left, that the Manchester Regiment came in. Do you have anything to contribute to this to rumours and, and and mysterious stories about this? Yeah, I think, uh, again, it's like a lot of these stories, you have to be careful that you don't enhance something that's already been slightly enhanced. And I know that it sometimes spoils it because for years I've told the story that these two died on the on the top of the uh, the, the mound, the, the butt, um, where the, uh, we haven't mentioned it yet, but where the Australian 5th Divisional Memorial is. Um, I'm not sure that's true, um, but I think they died together. They, they certainly, uh, if they weren't quite on top of the, uh, on the mound, they were close to it. And uh, certainly they were definitely talking to each other they were briefed uh, they were briefing each other because um, they were handing over the australians were withdrawing so uh, lieutenant colonel scott uh, um, dso distinguished service order um, and uh, lieutenant colonel dudley also dso distinguished service order were were, were discussing i've just had one one terrible aspect of this um, scott is 26 and dudley was 25 so these are both men commanding battalions um, both uh, 26 and 25, so both very young young men, uh, and both also awarded the DSO, a Distinguished Service Order, so both had bravery awards. Um, and the, one of the stories is that they were hit by the same bullet, um, and, if, uh, and that story is sometimes enhanced a little more, that the bullet ricocheted off the ground and was not aimed at them. Um, which, whatever is the case, they were certainly side by side. They were certainly uh, killed at, at the same time, whether it be the same bullet and whether it ricocheted or whether it just be a sniper that got them both. Um, uh, and so uh, they both lie in, in the cemetery. So it's a very sad story because the Australians that were leaving that day, so uh, so uh, two commanding officers both lost, not in a battle. And that's one of the other aspects of the fighting here. And I often get families who say this, well, my relative was killed on the 27th of September. That wasn't the battle. There was no battle going on there. Well, of course there was. The fighting continues. It's just that we are not attempting to advance on the 27th. We're actually reorganising, holding our our positions and preparing for the next, uh, the next push, which will be broodsinned in a few days after. Um, so the fighting doesn't really go away. So the chances of being killed in not on the actual battle day are almost as high. And it's by actions like this, by the, the randomness of the Great War. Uh, and these two guys, sadly, that's what happened to them. Much more likely, I think, that they were killed by a shell would be a much more likely scenario, that they were together handing over and a shell landed and killed them both because shells often killed you know, many people at a time. So, But either way, uh, you know, the, the, the evidence suggests they were killed together and um, are now buried not far from each other in the cemetery. Also, while you're in the cemetery, look out for the Zonabek Five or the West Hoke Five, as they're also known, the, uh, the soldiers that were uncovered and that, uh, that I was fortunate to get to know during that documentary, Lost in Flanders. So that's uh, Jack Hunter... Um, John Calder and George Story are the three soldiers that were identified out of the five uh, and lie together in a, in, a, in a plot where they were reburied in uh, in 2007. So just a remarkable story. Their names are still on the Menon Gate, Memorial to the Missing, uh, but they also have now a named headstone in uh, in this cemetery. So uh, just a really wonderful place. And um, we are now going to leave the cemetery and climb up onto the butts, which overlooks the cemetery, and head up to the 5th Australian Divisional Memorial Peter, a, a remarkable spot on the battlefields uh, and uh, one of the five Australian divisional memorials on the Western Front. It is. It's a, it's a beautiful memorial and enhanced by the height, by being on top of the butt. Uh, the others are not quite as uh, as enhanced, the other the other four. We have one, Just, I just think I'll just add this little bit of information. It's just, just an interesting by the by. Um, five divisions, uh, should be five obelisks, all exactly the same. Uh, but one of them, the second division, decided to do uh, something else. Um, I, I won't discuss it further because I'm sure it'll, it'll come into one of our, uh, our future uh, podcasts. Um, so we only have four of these, four looking exactly the same and designed by the commander of the fifth division. Um, he, he will eventually be uh, uh, a sir, Lieutenant General Sir Joseph John Hobbs. 
Um, and he was commanding the 5th Division. But he's an architect in civilian life. He was an architect, and I think he was very keen to be involved in the designing of the memorials commemorating the Australian effort uh, on the Western Front. And so uh, it's his design um, that is going to be used for those uh, four divisional memorials, and this being uh, uh, his own uh, division. So this is the one that I always talk about, uh, uh, John Hobbs, uh, here. Um, so uh, uh, emblazoned... Uh, with the the rising sun on the front in in bronze, and the memorial itself is made out of uh, a blue stone. It was it was going to be originally the idea was that it would actually be shipped from Australia, but it was found that it was going to be too costly and take too long, and so they looked for a stone uh, that was as near as they could get to to uh, Australian blue stone, and uh, and it certainly it's not not a bad effort. It's interesting that the other divisional memorials, the first division is at Pozier, the second at Mont Saint-Quentin, the third at sally le sec on the Somme, the fourth at Bellingley's way out in the Ain region, and then the fifth division memorial here at Polygon Wood, each marking the site of a significant action as chosen by the division. And they're, they're, they're quite remarkable. They also include the battle honours of the divisions where they fought. The, and I think they, that, that tells an interesting story in its own right because the fifth division memorial, the first battle honour on this memorial is Fromel. And we don't often see Fromel listed anywhere as a battle honour. I mean, go back to our first episode of, of this podcast series and, and listen to our walk around the disastrous Australian battlefield of Fromel. But it's not often, Pete, that you see Fromel mentioned anywhere as a battle honour. It's not even on the uh, the uh, National Memorial at Villas Bretonneux. You'd expect it to be on there, but it, it's not even on there. Fromel is uh, is not is not mentioned. So it, it is extraordinary. I think this is the only place you will you will find it. Certainly on the battlefield, uh, one of the aspects of of building these memorials was that they are on significant sites but ne- never a significant site that is just a disaster. Because several people have asked me over the years, is why is this memorial not on Fromel? Well, there is, there's nothing laudable on the Fromel battlefield. It's a total disaster, no gain, no, no, pointless. Uh, and so um, it, it was decided not to build the memorial there, even though that's where, where the worst casualties of the whole of the war will take place for the 5th Division in that, that one-day action. Um, and this, this was fairly heavy casualties, but it was decided that this, were, this was a very successful action part of the third battle of Ypres um, and so uh, yeah I think it was a correct decision to build it here um, interestingly uh, Talbot Hobbs is from Perth and uh, there's a, a beautiful statue of him I've not actually seen it in in real life as they say recently moved um, it used to be uh, uh, close to the quay I think and uh, now it's uh, in the um, in Supreme Court Gardens in Perth, and that's his home city. Well, actually, he's not. He's a Brit. He was actually born in uh, uh, and educated in Britain, but uh, set up a, uh, an architect's practice in Perth, and that's where he's remembered. I think, didn't he die in some unusual circumstances as well? He did indeed. Very sad. I don't know why I'm sniggering, because it's, uh, it's terrible, really. He was uh, on a ship on the way back to uh, uh, to, to France, actually, um, for the unveiling of the uh, the memorial at Villas Bretonneux, the Australian National Memorial at Villas Bretonneux, and he actually died on board the ship uh, uh, when he was uh, he was heading heading to uh, to take part in the service commemorating Australian effort on the Western Front uh, with the unveiling of the Australian National Memorial. So he didn't make it, sadly. Ironic that he. Uh that uh, that he didn't make that the opening of that memorial very sad a sad footnote to that it tale is, yeah. we're going to walk down off the uh, off the butts now we're going to walk out of polygon wood cemetery and directly across the road it, it links the butts links very neatly to another little cemetery that's across the road one of my favorites on the western front polygon wood cemetery it's a battlefield cemetery constructed during the war it's it's a little anzac cemetery most of the burials there are australians or new zealanders and um, just a, a really interesting spot to visit, Pete. And uh, you can tell the difference between the the huge, well organised concentration cemetery across the road and this tiny little battlefield cemetery, obviously constructed during the war. It's a, it's a real good juxtaposition. And if you're talking cemeteries, which I quite often am, uh, then this is the the right place to be because you've got uh, the uh, the enormous Butts Cemetery, which is um, is is planned and designed and. Uh, uh, it is perfect in 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 its layout, and here we have the Polygon Wood Cemetery, which is oddly outside of the wood, just um, but it, it's random. The graves are facing different directions. There's small groups, there's individuals, there's even a German burial in, in there, which is which is quite interesting. Um, and so, uh, when was it created? Well, it was created immediately after the fighting takes place, and so these guys are are brought in and buried here. Now, what's unusual about that? 
is that we don't do it. It's too dangerous. This area was so dangerous that, as I said, people were buried individually. There are very few battlefield cemeteries because that's what this is. And so it's very unusual. And I often wondered why it's there. Why would you put a battlefield cemetery uh, uh, just beside the wood? And it becomes fairly obvious once you know that there was once, it's no longer there, but there was once another cemetery there. And that was a German cemetery. Created uh, after the fighting in 1915, uh, when uh, the Germans forces off these ridges, and so it was already existing. And this is very common: is that if we then take a, a landscape and there's already a military cemetery there, we very often bury our dead in the enemy's cemetery, and that's exactly what happened here. When we cleared the uh, the ridge, cleared the woods, pushed the Germans far enough back where we could actually just gather together a few people, um, uh, as was said, only 107 people buried here. But they brought them in alongside this pre-existing German cemetery. Now, what is the sad aspect of all of this is uh, it's no longer there. The German cemetery was actually removed in the 1950s um, at a time when it was felt after the Second World War and the horror of the occupation. A lot of people just didn't really want Germans to be buried anywhere in Belgium. Um, and it was decided that, that perhaps the best thing to do would be to concentrate them. And the, the Germans were exhumed from their various small cemeteries because this was not a big cemetery. And eventually they are going to be concentrated, sadly, in mass graves. And uh, um, in this case at Langemark, so, uh, which is a, a village on the other side of the salient. Uh, we'll cover it, I'm sure, in, a, in another podcast. Um, and the German cemetery there now contains a very big uh, mass, uh, mass grave of uh, soldiers gathered from this area. And so... I, I don't like it, I have to say, and I, I often make my, my feelings known uh, when, I'm, when I'm here, because I think it's a great shame, because I think it would have enhanced the battlefield and gave you that juxtaposition of, of seeing, you know, well, there's the enemy buried and there's uh, our, our burials here, and they're side by side, but uh, no, they, 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 were, they were moved uh, in the 1950s. It's quite late, I think it was 57 when that one was uh, actually shut down and, and removed. It's um, when you look at uh, trench maps of the time, you will see a cemetery marked on the trench maps, uh, even before the fighting in 1917, and that's the German cemetery that you mentioned. It's not the current Polygon Wood Cemetery that is there today. But I agree, I think it was a, a great injustice to the, 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 the Germans who lay in that cemetery. And at the end of the day, politics aside and diplomacy aside, it's the poor blokes in the front line on either side that, uh, that are paying the price for, uh, for these, these huge wars. So I agree. It was a, a sad chapter for uh, for Belgium to to make that decision, but that's as it is. That brings us to the end of our walking tour of Polygon Wood, a wonderful battlefield, always one that I I I enjoy getting back to. It just it tells an incredible story. It was one of the first ones I visited, and Pete, thank you so much. I I learned a lot during this walk that I didn't know about Polygon Wood. So thank you very much for your your wonderful insights into this battlefield. No, it's a pleasure, Matt. It's uh, it's one that I enjoy as well because of that that differences, the different cemeteries, the blockhouses. There's so much to look at in one very small area. Well, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. 
So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.